I think there is something that you have to give up a lot of times if you're really going to, um, you know, do house hacking at a high level or really investing at a, at a high level. And for me, that was like three months where I essentially became a hermit and I just worked on my house, right? And uh, after that, that was such a rewarding experience. And so that might happen in a, a lot of different ways for people. You know, a lot of people think I can just continue to live the same exact life as I do now and I'm going to, you know, be a successful investor and do all these things. There's a lot of work that goes into it. There's a lot of education. There's a lot of, you know, money at times that, that needs to go into it. And, and so if you want to do it quickly, a lot of times there's something that you have to give up. Welcome to the House Hacking Success Podcast, where you'll learn the path to free rent and financial freedom through real estate. Featuring your hosts, Brad Labrie and Drew Klingler. Hey everyone, real quick before we start the show, Brad wrote an amazing ebook that will teach you everything you need to know about house hacking and living rent free. To get a free copy, text house hack all one word to 22828. That's house hack all one word to 22828 to get your free copy. Welcome to House Hacking Success. I'm your host, Brad Delivery, with my co host, Drew. Drew, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Yourself, Brad? I'm doing great. We had Austin Carroll on the show today. He's from Baltimore, Maryland. And this show was super in-depth. We talk about his 64 units, how he's become one of the top agents in his Keller Williams program, and just so much more. We go into so much depth in this podcast. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Uh, He talks about how he got into house hacks and then how he transitioned from house hacks to doing live-in flips because he no longer wanted to be a house hacker. And then also talks about his expertise in Burr, and uh, it's a very valuable episode. Yeah, and live and flip is a house hack in and of itself. I mean, there's so many tax advantages. Like, for instance, you don't pay any taxes in capital gains on the appreciation that you sell for if you live in the property for two years. So he gets in-depth on that. We go over Burr investing, which he has done so much of, and how he plans it, how he talks to contractors, how he you know looks at properties. He draws up plans. Just so much in-depth. This can be a great episode for everyone to listen to. Absolutely. He's also going to talk about private money lenders, and everyone's always interested in hearing about that. Uh, this is a great episode. I think everyone's going to enjoy. Well, let's get to it, man. Welcome to House Hacking Success. Today we have Austin here. We'll thr- we're thrilled you're here, man. Thanks, man. I'm excited. So your story goes back a while. You have 64 units now uh, in Baltimore area. You're a top performing real estate agent. But talk to us a little bit about your early background before getting into real estate. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I grew up on a small farm in an area called Ellicott City, kind of between Baltimore and D.C. And um, my dad owns an auto repair shop. And so, growing up, we uh, we built a lot of stuff. So he did a lot of teaching of, hey, here's how we kind of build a little shed or you know whatever it might be. And so that was kind of my first introduction to, I guess, you know, construction or real estate. And um, if we fast forward during high school and uh, and college, I had a small handyman business. Uh, where I just you know go do things, random kind of jobs, painting, fence work, things like that. And um, eventually, what happened was um, I ran into I went to University of Maryland Business School. Thought I was going to go be a consultant. You know, I always kind of thought about real estate a little bit. My parents were always interested in it, but never thought that was like a full time thing. And with my resume and background, I I had a recruiter reach out to me from a home builder. Um, so I did an internship with them. For a year, and then I had a part-time job where I was putting up inflatable movies during college. So it'd be like a Friday night, and you know, a community association or something would be showing Frozen or you know whatever it might be, and uh, I would go put that up. And I ended up putting it up a couple times for this uh, developer down in D.C. that also owned a, a real estate sales team. And uh, little did I know at the time, I was just bagging popcorn, and uh, I was talking to the CFO, and he said, "Hey, your resume sounds like it—you know—it might be a good fit for us in this development company." And so I said, "You know, that'd be awesome. I'd love to learn more about it." So, you know, a couple months later, we finally get together, and I end up interning there, and then going full time there. So that was my real introduction to kind of real estate and how that works from a development standpoint. We were uh, flipping houses. And they also had a large portfolio. So it was really cool to see kind of everything. And, and that was my introduction to both the strategies of real estate and like how that actually functions. So after that, it, I was still kind of between consulting and that. And I just realized the massive opportunity in real estate, especially in this region. 
And so that was kind of like the, the history of it and, and kind of how I got started and, and introduced to real estate in the first place. So touching on something real quick that you just talked about, you had a small little handyman business, right? And you were uh, learning the process kind of of real estate and being able to put things together. Like how much did that, how much did that help you going forward when you got into real estate, having that confidence, knowing how to put things together? Yeah. I, well, I think you said uh, the right word right there, which is confidence. And I think that's uh, what a lot of people like, that's what you need to have in real estate. And so when you have the confidence, if you understand how things go together, you understand how, you know, generally electrical works or generally you frame a house, um, different things like that just give you so much confidence. And even if you're doing none of the work, uh, which, you know, at this point, I don't do really anything. I've probably become pretty inept with my hands at this point. I should probably get a little bit better with it again. But, um, but just the confidence that, that you have when you're going through and talking to a contractor, you know, the words to use and things like that. And I think what most people don't realize a lot of the things I learned also came from um, mission trips that I would do. So I did a lot of mission trips in high school where we'd go down to new Orleans after uh, hurricane Katrina and work on stuff. And it's like, that is one of the greatest way, you know, every city has habitat for humanity or something like that. And so if you're a newer investor and you're trying to just get some general knowledge yeah, you can get a projects and have, you know, 30, 40 contractors through and just see what some of them say, see what other ones say. But you can also go to these areas like a Habitat for Humanity or something and volunteer and do some of the work yourself and talk to some of the people that maybe it's a great way to find contractors and stuff like that, too. But I think that's that's where a lot of knowledge came from. But it's I think if you have a couple different you can be really great at numbers. You can be really great at finding deals. You can be really great at raising private capital. Or you can be really great at construction, you know, and I think you have to have some a combination of those to be a really good inspector, um, investor. And I think the construction piece is a, is a huge part of that. Very cool. Uh, so can we move forward and talk about your first house hack? Uh, could you tell us about how you ended up finding it and how you financed it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my first house hack was in an area called Riverdale, uh, about 15 minutes outside of the DC area, um, right outside of College Park where University of Maryland is, and that's where I went to, to college at. And um, <laughs> it's actually funny, I was walking through the halls one day of the development company when I was interning there uh, my last semester in college, and one of the ladies, she was happened to be a real estate agent, and I was walking by, I'd helped her with a couple things uh, as an intern, and she just asked, hey, do you want to buy a house? And I was like, well, that sounds kind of cool, you know, I, I don't think I want to rent, my parents live about an hour, 15 minutes from here, and that commute would be horrendous. So it's like, you know, when my lease is up in college in August, I should uh, I should probably figure something out. And so uh, I talked to her and she was like, yeah, like, let's go check out some options, like no pressure. And I generally knew I wanted something that I could do some work to and build some equity in. And then I knew I didn't know how hacking or any of these terms at the time. I just knew, hey, I could probably rent a couple of rooms out and, you know, reduce the amount I have to pay. And so um we went to one house. It was actually one of the first houses that we saw it was the one I ended up buying. And then I needed to see like 10 other ones after that to like actually know that that one was the one I wanted to buy. And it was a um, Fannie Mae home path home. So it's the way that uh, Fannie and Freddie, um, you know, big holders of mortgages get rid of a lot of their foreclosed on properties. Um, to be honest, knowing what I know about mortgages and stuff like that now, I have no clue how she financed this for me. It was a conventional loan, 5% down, but like, the water wasn't working in the property and things like that. So I don't know how she got, um, how she ended up getting that through and, and getting through that appraisal, which needs to usually have, you know, running water and at least heat. Everything else can kind of, um, you know, not look good. But anyway, so we end up going to closing and, um, and then it was just, you know, three, four months of that was one of the only properties that I did a lot of the work, almost all the work myself and, and just with fam family and friends, you know, your typical, demo party where you invite all your buddies over and you, you know, take down walls and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the painting party where you have 20 people in and everybody's painting and things like that. So, um, that was my first house act. So I'll give you some numbers. I bought it for $192,000, um, and had some seller subsidy and stuff like that to keep the, the cash low. I had about 20 grand just from saved up from, you know, handyman business, things like that. Um, so it wasn't one where I had, you know, zero money in or anything like that. So bought it, used most of that 20 grand for the purchase of it and some of the beginning renovations. And over time, we probably ended up putting about $65,000 into it. It wasn't all at once, um, but that was 
through a series of just raising a little bit of private capital from uh, family and friends, you know, 20, 30 K kind of thing. Uh, and then doing a refinance when it got to a certain point. And I did two refinances on that house. Um, while I was there, then it was a five bedroom, three bath house. And so I rented the other four bedrooms out. Um, so I lived for free, made 500 bucks a month, had an awesome house, uh, had huge appreciation, actually sold it last year, I think to another house hacker. Um, so bought it 192, put 65 into it, sold it for 350. Um, you know, no real closing costs or anything. It was just kind of person to person transaction. Um, so that's kind of like the breakdown of, of that one. But it, I mean, it was a fantastic house hack, um, you know, to, to get started with. That's awesome. So you started out, you did a 5% conventional is what you said. Uh, yep. but you said you refinanced twice. Talk a little bit about that, the process and why you decided to do those. Yeah. So, um, it was really a cash challenge. <laughs> you know, I started to run out of cash and, you know, I was making money at the development job, but that was really my only source of other source of income. So once I got it to a place where it was, you know, it was good enough, um, then I did a refinance and I did a, a FHA refinance, 85% loan to value ratio. And so I just wanted to get as much cash out of it as I could. Um, this area was also pretty rapidly appreciating. Uh, when I look back, it was probably about 8% appreciation a year. So um, that first refinance I did, you know, I took out as much cash as possible. Second refinance I did was to lower my, uh, my mortgage costs. So I got off the mortgage insurance, um, you know, got a lower rate, things like that. So that was kind of the reason for them. Um, and then also I, I, so the first refinance was getting everything good in the house where I could rent it. Um, the second one was a little bit more of like making it, um, like I built a personal deck off of my, uh, you know, my master suite and things like that, uh, put a little hot tub in things like that. Things that like wouldn't necessarily be a, a good strategy for a house hacker, but like lifestyle, it was kind of cool to do. Um, so that was kind of the difference between the, the two refinances there. Awesome. And you can see the confidence, like we talked about earlier, you know, being able to take on a project like that, get taken on a bank owned property. Uh, I did something very similar. Um, you know, for my first place. And I also started with a little handyman business. I just learned, you just learn the ropes, right? And it's not yeah. the fact that you have to know, be really hands-on because I wasn't when I started. But I mean, there are so many great resources like YouTube, right? You can read books on pretty much anything, right? Regarding, you know, doing home, you know, changing a toilet, uh, doing some of these minor things. You just kind of learn it as you go, but it does build a lot of confidence. I think there is something that you have to give up a lot of times if you're really going to um, you know, do house hacking at a high level or really investing at a, at a high level. And for me, that was like three months where I essentially became a hermit and I just worked on my house. Right. And, uh, after that, that was such a rewarding experience. And so that might happen in a, a lot of different ways for people. You know, a lot of people think I can just continue to live the same exact life as I do now. And I'm going to, you know, be a successful investor and do all these things. But there's a lot of work that goes into it. There's a lot of education. There's a lot of you know, money at times that, that needs to go into it. And, and so if you want to do it quickly, a lot of times there's something that you have to give up. And, and so I'm sure for you as well, if you were doing a lot of that stuff, like your buddies call you up and say like, Hey, you want to go out on Friday night? And you're like, Hey, I actually got to change the toilet or, you know, like I'm switching out my vanity or, you know, like whatever it is. And for me, that was like three months of intense, like doing the work. Um, but it was, it was super, super rewarding. I'll never forget that when I first bought this place, it was a you know almost a complete gut, kind of similar to what it sounds like yours was. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, New Year's Eve, all my buddies are texting me like, mm -hmm. "Hey, you want to go out?" And here I am putting up tile in the bathroom, you know, doing a backsplash in the kitchen. And uh, it just takes a lot. It takes some sacrifice sometimes, but at the end of the day, it's it'll reward itself, and it's you know it'll pay off for sure. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So let's transition now. You went into from house hacking to living flips. Right. You did two and it sounds like you're about to do your third. Um, so kind of, you know, talk, walk us through that, what that is and how people can utilize a live and flip. Yeah. So, um, you know, Tony Robbins talks about this thing called net time, no extra time. And I think that's a it's a it's an interesting concept where if you're in the car, you're learning, you know, you're listening to a podcast, you're doing something like that. When you have times where you just you're not necessarily focused on something, you should be you know, feeding your mind something else. In the investing world, I think that takes place in where you actually live. And so the two strategies behind that are either house hacking uh, or a live and flip. And so um, for a live and flip, you're essentially flipping a house, but you're living in it uh, usually for two years so that you get the tax benefit of, of not having to pay any capital gains tax because it was your primary residence for two years. And so um, 
So for me, the next step after I left my house hack was, hey, you know, my uh, fiance um, was moving in. You know, she didn't want to live with people. I didn't necessarily want to have that lifestyle um, anymore. And I didn't really want to do a multi-unit where we would have, you know, separate units that we would be living in. So um, for me, it was, let's do a live and flip. And so uh, we want to move up to the Baltimore area from the D.C. area because there's so much opportunity up here. And I'm currently in Baltimore as well um, in the investing world where D.C. is just really, really heated. And if you don't have a large chunk of money to get started, it can be very challenging. So um, Baltimore was really the opportunity for me. You found kind of like a secondary neighborhood that's a, a fantastic neighborhood called Hamden and, um, you know, found a house. So the numbers on this one was bought it for one hundred and thirty two thousand um, put about $70,000 into it. And then, uh, we just sold it about a year and a half ago for, um, $275,000. So it was a, a, you know, after closing costs and stuff like that, it was like a 40, $50,000 gain. The coolest part of that is you get to live in a brand new, uh, renovated house. Uh, uh, the challenge of that is depending on how much of it you're doing yourself, you might live for a while in a not fully renovated house. Right. <laughs> so um, it was like my evolution was like the first house I did like everything. Uh, this next house I, I didn't do quite as much, but it was still putting in the hardwood floors, still, you know, sanding and standing the stairs, you know, uh, putting in the kitchen, things like that. And so there was a little bit less that I did, but um, but it was still, you know, a little bit of a challenge in that. So that was the next house hack and, and or I'm sorry, uh, live and flip. And then we realized you know, we want something a little bigger. It was a smaller kind of row home. And so then we moved into the house that we're in now, which is a, a really large 4,000 square foot row home. Um, and then that one was another live and flip. So I bought that one for $225,000, uh, put right around $100,000 into it. And the appraised value when we did our refinance um, about a year ago was $460,000. I don't think you actually get that on the market right here. I think it's more likely 400 or 425,000. Um, but you know, this project was a lot of risk taking on because it was, it was drywalled and like everything needed to be finished, but there were like a lot of things that weren't necessarily done. Right. So a lot of people were kind of scared of it. Um, the power of the live in flip though, is that you essentially have, if you're going to live in it, you essentially have two years to mitigate any of the risks that you take on. So let's say there's a, a small dip in the neighborhood that you're in, in terms of valuations, you know, if that's, if you're flipping a house and you're selling it right when a bunch of other stuff comes on the market or whatever, then you, you might be a little bit uh, challenged to get that sold. Uh, whereas with the live and flip, you can kind of start to look at things, time the market right, put it on the market in the spring when it's the hottest time, you know, like really like decorate it nicely and stuff like that. Versus with the flip, you might not be able to do those things. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the power of the live and flip, but it's so nice to be able to have tax free. Um, profits. And then it's also nice to be able to put a home equity line of credit on your property. Um, and usually the banks, at least that I'm used to dealing with, don't do that with investment properties. But with your primary residence, you can put a home equity line of credit on it and use that capital for other deals and stuff like that. So uh, which talk, talk about that real quick. Just what what is yeah. a home equity line of credit and how can people utilize it? Yeah, so the home equity line of credit is a, um, it's basically a second loan on your property. So you're gonna have your first loan that you either buy it with or you refinance if you're doing a live and flip with. And so um, you're gonna have that first loan and then you're gonna have this line of credit that is going to specify, hey, um, your house has, let's say $100,000 of equity in it. You can, we're gonna give you a loan up to $80,000 of that. And then you just draw on it as you want. So if you have a project, let's say that you're buying and you need some some cash to get started on the renovation or something, then you can draw down from that $80,000, use it on that. And your cost of capital is, I would say, probably in the four to five percent range. So if your alternative to, is to use something like hard money, um, which is your you know flexible capital for flipping properties or, or doing renovations, that's usually, you know, 10 to 14 percent. And it usually comes with a lot of closing costs associated mm -hmm. with the home equity line of credit. Um, most of the time you can get the bank to pay for the closing costs for the home equity line of credit. And then you have a, you know, four to 5% interest rate. So um, it's a really, really cool way to, and a lot of times you're paying interest only um, on those as well versus like your normal mortgage where you're paying, you know, the whole um, amortization schedule and the principal and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, my partner personally, he owns his house free and clear, him and his wife do. But they take that equity and they'll go purchase properties, right? And they'll renovate it with the HELOC. Uh, and then they'll refinance out into a conventional loan. They'll have 30% equity. They never put any of their own money in. They'll take that HELOC, put it back in the house, go buy another house. You know, um, and it's a super advantageous way to buy property without the closing costs, right? Without the, you know, initiating a bank loan, you buy it cash, right? Which means that you generally will beat out most people that come in with a conventional loan or whatever, you know, because you can close within a week, uh, you know, or, or two. And so, yeah, very advantageous way to go. Cool. So I think it was awesome that you, when you decided house hacking wasn't for you, you found a way to move into properties and still make them your investment properties by doing the live in flips. Right. Um, now you're a real estate agent and it sounds like you're helping other people find house hacks. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? and what unique ways you see people utilizing the house hack. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my way to becoming a real estate agent was largely driven by my network. So um, I talked to you about the development company that I worked for. Um, awesome company, if anybody wants to look it up and they're in the DC area, you know, looking for a job or anything, it's the Minkiti Group. Um, and so they also had an in-house sales team. And so I was interacting with the sales team a lot on our flips. Uh, you know, I was helping them search the MLS or the multiple listing service where all of the, uh, the data for, for houses is basically housed, uh, for houses on the market. And so I'd be searching it all the time, looking for, uh, properties to buy and things like that. And so I got a kind of a crash course in being an agent. And, um, over time then my body has started to come over to my house and be like, Hey, so like you're living in this house for free or you're like making some money every month. And, you know, I'd tell them the story and they'd be like, I kind of want to do that. So then I was like, well, maybe it would make sense for me to get my real estate license. And, and like a lot of investors, I was also thinking, you know what, like I'm going to buy some investment properties. I can be my own agent, you know, and so I'm going to do it for that. And um, that's kind of how it started out. And then some of my buddies were like, hey, I want to buy a property. And I was like, OK, like, let me like try to help you through this. And so, um, it, you know, if I were to only be an investor, it probably would not be a good use of my time or money to be a real estate agent. Um, unless I was also doing what I'm doing now and, and helping other people. And so a uh, reason being is you actually have a lot of costs associated with being a real estate agent. You know, you've got your MLS fees, you've got your brokerage fees, you've got your, you know, local, uh, organization fees, all that stuff. And so, um, it's also actually a job, you know, you actually have to learn stuff and do things and, and it can be pretty difficult at times. So, um, I decided that I was going to make the leap full-time to real estate agent, um, probably after two and a half years of being in a development company. And, um, you know, then it was really just helping my network. And a lot of my network were guys that had graduated from college two years ago. They were tired of renting. They wanted to buy something. They were living with their buddies anyways, and they had the means to do it. And so, um, the really cool thing about it is that so many, you know, different people look at house hacks different ways. So I've sold a $500,000, you know, five bedroom home in a really nice area house hack. And I've sold a $150,000, you know, three bedroom house in kind of a rougher area house hack. And so there's so many different ways to do it. And so if somebody is looking at, you know, how might they optimize it? A lot of it comes up to what are they willing to take on in terms of risk? It might seem really risky, the $500,000 house, but if you're getting, you know, $1,200 a month for each bedroom, that might actually be less risky than the $150,000 house where you're only getting 500 for each bedroom. And so, you know, you really have to learn how to evaluate risk in a different way than I think anybody has ever taught you. And that's one of the, my biggest challenges as a real estate agent is helping my clients who are house hacking figure out their tolerance for risk and actually assess the risk of the situation. You know, a lot of people are like, I want to be able to pay for the whole house mortgage comfortably uh, if I were to not have any tenants. And then might be looking at six bedroom houses. Well, it's like if you actually didn't have any other tenants in that, you're just like grossly neglecting it. You know, it's actually very, very hard to not, you know, fill five rooms and then have everybody move out and then not have anybody in the house. So it's like, <laughs> let's actually evaluate that risk. It might be a risk that you'd have two or three bedrooms vacant at a time. But the, the fact that you would have all of them vacant is almost non-existent. Um, so different things like that. And then in Baltimore area, we have a lot of uh, multi-units as well. So with a house hack, you can buy up to a four unit property um, and, you know, put three and a half percent down. Or if you're using a conventional uh, loan, you could do five percent down. 
And so that's another opportunity. So you kind of have your single family home with lots of bedrooms, house hack, and then you have your multifamily house hack, and then you've got a varying array of price points and locations. And, um, and that's kind of like the, just kind of like if it were on a diagram and you were to say like, okay, over here is the multi-unit, here's the single families, here's your price points. You're just going to get varying things in each of them. And so, um, so that's like, you know, it's really unique to see people say like, I want something under 200,000, but I want, you know, four bedrooms. And it's like, okay, let's take a look. These are the areas you're going to get in and then to see how they succeed with it. And then to alternatively have somebody with a $500,000 one, you know, and see how they succeed. And, and really it's cool to see. I haven't had any clients, probably close to 20 clients that have house hacked now. Um, only one of them had a bad experience and, and uh, he ended up selling it for like a 40K profit. So, you know, it turned out to be not a bad experience. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was, I was like, it was like sewer line broke and stuff like that. But, you know, that's kind of besides the point. So that's like, you know, um, in terms of being an agent and helping, you know, I do a lot of other, I help flippers, I help uh, regular homeowners as well. But the house hacking is my favorite. But really, that's the conversation is what's your risk and how do you want to, how do you want to run it in terms of price point, multifamily, uh, location, so, things like that. So let's kind of jump into that. Um, kind of combine the two, like talk to when people talk to you, whether they should do multi-unit versus rent by the bedrooms, like what do you usually talk, tell them, uh, how do you advise them? And then when newbie house hackers come to you, like what is kind of the process you kind of run them through? Because there is a little bit of a difference between renting by the bedroom versus multi-unit, right? In your tenant base, where you are, uh, how do you speak to newbie yep. house hackers when they come to you? Yeah. So <clears throat> the first thing that I want to, I, I try to get to is, are you looking at this because you just want to, you know, live in a good place, but you don't want to pay, you know, the full amount that rent would be or something like that? Or do you actually want to make this into like your first step to being an investor? And there's a very big difference there because you might be looking at a three bedroom home where you still pay 600 bucks a month or something like that. If you're just looking at it kind of like a lifestyle kind of thing, I'm going to be in this area for three, four years. I have some buddies that want to live with me things like that. If you're really numbers focused and you want this to be like your jump pad for investing, I'm going to say one of the biggest things is we want to uh, run the numbers and make sure that it cash flows for you. And so one of the biggest things for that, I think in the in the market that we're in, uh, multi-units are very, very hot. There's not a ton of them. And so um, you're either going to typically overpay on them or be beat out by an investor that can you know close in cash or something like that. Um, so those are a little bit more challenging. If you're willing to be patient, we might be able to find something. Um, but a lot of times the the best way to go is a single family home. And um, we've got a lot of areas where a lot of young professionals live. And those are the hot areas. And so uh, it seems a little bit counterintuitive. But I, from my experience, the house hacks work a little bit better kind of at the higher price point. Um, you know, we're in the city and the school system isn't necessarily great. So you've got a five bedroom house. It's not really a family that's going to be moving in. It's going to be somebody that's doing like what, what these guys are doing. You know, they're going to be renting some bedrooms out, living with their buddies, whatever it might be. And so you tend to get a little bit lower price point um, in terms of if you were to put that in the county with a nice uh, school system where you'd be competing with some families and things like that. So I think for us, the opportunity is how many rentable spaces are there? And uh, I don't know if you guys talk about on your podcast, the 1% rule. But just a, a, a real quick recap of what that is, is it's a relation of the purchase price to how much rent you're getting. And so, um, you know, let's just take a simple deal. Let's say you buy a house for $200,000. The 1% rule says you should rent it out for $2,000 a month, roughly. Now, in different areas, you're going to adjust that percentage up. In Baltimore, we're going to be looking for, a, you know, closer to a 2% rule. In uh, D.C., you're going to look at like 0.5%, you know, so if you buy something for 400,000, you might be renting it for 2000 or something like that. So you can use that same thing on a house hack. And so if you're looking at a four bedroom house versus a five bedroom house, let's say you're going to get $800 a month in rent. Well, what's the difference in the price that you can kind of go there? And so if we use the, the 1% rule, you should be able to pay $80,000 more for that five bedroom than for that four bedroom. Well, if it's only thirty or $40,000 more, then it's a better opportunity to buy the five-bedroom versus the four-bedroom. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's basically 
Go ahead. And it does because this is the distinction I try to you know drive home with people all the time. Uh, in my markets, which is pretty similar to where you're at, I'm in Detroit and Flint, right? We have uh, yeah. we have coastal investors come in and get three percent rule, right? Uh, they can buy properties for dirt cheap. Uh, fix them up a little bit, run them out, right? But then when you get into where we invest, where Drew and I invest, which is more of the suburbs, right? You're you're looking at a one percent rule, and a lot of people yep. come in hard fast, like, hey, I want a two percent rule. Well, you're not really going to find it if you're looking for a higher quality of tenant, right? If you want to get into a school, a good school district, right? You're not really going to find uh, a two percent rule, and you just have to know what the rules are, how they apply, and where you're at. Because if you're looking for yeah. something, you know, in the suburbs, like you are in a good school district outside of Baltimore, and you're trying to find a two percent deal, deal, you're going to get really frustrated, right? Right. Uh, but you just have right. to know where you're at, what you're looking for, and why you're looking for that. Yeah, absolutely. And and so being able to take that and valuing the price of a room is really what that that rule helps with in a house hack. So if you have a you know three bedroom, three hundred thousand dollar house, you're paying a hundred thousand dollars a bed, you know, per bedroom. And so you have to, you just have to do that calculation, but it helps you understand the difference between four rentable spaces and six rentable spaces. And really where the cash flow starts to come in for clients that I see is, is the sweet spot is around like four bedrooms and a basement. You know, maybe the, the house hacker lives in the basement and rents out the four bedrooms or, you know, five bed, like five rentable spaces is a really fantastic um, kind of um, sweet spot to start investing. Um, and if people want a little bit, one of my clients actually, who's become one of my uh, partners, Devin Marino, um, he's got a YouTube channel that talks a lot about like individual, like he'll actually manage some house hacks for other people. So he talks about like all these nuances of like, you know, should you buy furniture? What kind of furniture should you buy? Like, what should you provide? Like, what should you charge for? Like all that stuff, which is, is really cool. That's a good resource for people as well. Cool. So, uh, could you tell us about your expertise in bear investing? Uh, what is it and how can investors capitalize on that? Yeah, so the um, the, the Burr investing is how I built the um, the portfolio, uh, you know, outside of the living flips and, and the house hacks. And so um, that has been, I, I think Burrs can take a number of different um, different ways that, that you can execute on them. There's your typical one where you're going to buy a house that needs a full renovation or a multi-unit that needs a full renovation. You're going to buy it cheap enough that you can put the renovation into it. And then um, with your after valuation, you're able to pull out all your money and kind of repeat it. Um, there's also an opportunity if you know areas and you just get something for a low enough value that you can then take that and you can refinance it and you don't actually have to do really any work to it. So that's kind of like the two spectrums of the burr. Um, so one, you just find a good enough deal where you can just refinance out of it or in Baltimore, we have a lot of areas where it's relatively block to block. So you might be able to buy on one block and get a valuation from another block from an, an appraiser. And so it's pretty cool as long as you're comfortable with where that is. Um, you know, we bought a single family home from a wholesaler for $63,000 and we're doing a refinance now. Uh, it's worth about $100,000. So we'll be able to pull out all the cash and all we did was just, you know, purchase it cash, purchase it quickly. Uh, and then understand what the valuations were like in the area and what an appraiser might might do. It. And we, I think we could actually sell that one for that. So that's like the light end of the bird, um, being really well capitalized and being able to uh, find the deals. And then the other one, to give you another example, would be like um, me and one of my partners bought a 18-unit portfolio, uh, six different buildings. Basically, all of them were three units, and we renovated the whole thing. Bought it for two hundred grand, put about $900,000 into it. We're just finishing it up. And um, those were like really robust pro projects, really challenging in the fact that it, it took probably about nine months longer than I thought it would. <laughs> so it took, you know, a year and a half, almost uh, a little bit longer than a year and a half to get everything completed. Um, but what's really cool about that is that just from the construction, we got enough equity into it. And then you want to make sure that it's still cash flows. So you're going to then take a look at the cash flow of what you get from that. You want to make sure you get all your money out, but maybe you don't want to take it to the max uh, the max loan that you could get on the property so you could get a little bit more cash flow or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think really if you're doing the burrs, um, I think you have to be really good at either finding contractors, finding deals or uh, a combination of the two, because you can really look at it those two different ways where you just find really good deals and then you can just kind of use the, um, the valuation that you can get afterwards as the way to get your cash out or you're actually doing a pretty robust, um, construction project and every market's a little bit different in that as well. That's kind of what our market looks like. 
Awesome. So you spoke a little bit to the difference between like a small multifamily uh, bird deal versus a single family. Uh, talk about like how you plan a bird deal. And, you know, for someone looking to do it, when do you start getting contractors involved? Like, you know, when you when you go into it and you start to do some rough numbers on what it'll cost, right? You might be off by, you know, five or 10,000 either way, right? Uh, when do you start getting contractors involved? How do you plan a bird deal? Yeah, um, great question. Um, as much as possible, I'm gonna get a contractor involved after. I'm gonna go look at it uh, first. And I'm just gonna say, does this even make sense You know, to bring a contractor through or whatever? Um, a lot of times I'll make sure I get my square footage measurements. I'm going to get as much stuff as possible. How many windows am I replacing? How many interior doors am I replacing? How many exterior doors am I replacing? As much of that as possible. And then I'm going to get my, um, you know, my square footage of what's the actual building like. And I try to break out as much as possible as I can. And so I've got my own pro formas um, where I actually you know, look at, okay, I've got this much square footage. I'm going to need this much flooring. And there's a lot of stuff that's kind of um, commoditized. So your price for flooring installed is generally going to be about the same, you know, give or take maybe 50 cents a square foot. But if you're, you know, if you have a 2000 square foot house, you could have 20 contractors through there and of your best contractors that are giving you the best price, you're going to be relatively close and uh, similar with like hanging sheetrock, you know? And so I think it's important to start knowing what some of those numbers are. Um, I think, uh, Jay Scott has a book out, um, the book on rehab costs, I think, or, mm -hmm. um, rehabbing properties. And that's a really great reference to say for my window, I should pay X amount. And then, I mean, verify with people in your market and things like that. But a lot of these items you can kind of come up with your, you yourself. Um, and then it depends how you run the project. So if you hire like a full on general contractor, then you're probably going to want to get him out there, you know, right away. For me, I know what my flooring guy is going to charge. I, I can call up my plumber and say, hey, I've got three bedrooms or you know three bathrooms and a kitchen. Here's kind of the layout. What would be the rough price? And he's going to give me a price within 500 bucks. Same thing with my electrician. Hey, I'm going to, it's generally this size. What's my general price? Same thing with my HVAC, you know, my, my air conditioning and heating. And then where I have a little bit of trouble is like all my numbers with like painting and even drywall, sometimes I'll count the drywall and then I'll be significantly off. You know, I'll mm -hmm. say, oh, I only need 120 boards of drywall in here and I need 200, you know, or whatever it might be. So for me, I get in the contractors that I'm not entirely certain of um, and I want to get those or framing. Framing can pretty drastically change um, based off of what I think. So I'm going to usually get my framer and my, my drywaller in there is what I'm trying to do. Um, and those are usually the only numbers that I need to get to where I feel comfortable, you know, actually putting an offer on a property. Um, personally, I do drawings on every property. I think it helps keep the contractors in line as well, where I can say, you know, you, you didn't put a light here and it's clearly on the drawings that there should be a light here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a really great tool. So if you can find a, a guy to do floor plans for you, um, for a relatively affordable price, our guy out here does them between 700 and a thousand dollars, um, per building. But it, for me, it's a thousand dollars very well spent. Um, because I can just give it to contractors. I can get bid prices that way. You know, good contractors will be able to do a bid price based on that and maybe some pictures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I set one up and, and, um, you know, it depends on your level of expertise. But for me, I've gotten to a level where I feel comfortable knowing how much the windows are going to be or how much the flooring is going to be or the doors and things like that. Uh, and then I'll just verify my plumbing, electrical and HVAC and then all the other stuff I might actually get a contractor through. Right. And if you talk to contractors, a lot of times you'll say, hey, listen, and I do this with, with the contractors I deal with. I'm like, hey, I have no problem doing all the groundwork. Uh, do you have a price list, right? And so yeah. uh, with a couple of my contractors, they've given me price lists, right, um, for their flooring, you know, install price, like you said, um, yeah. versus this or that. And so you go there and you, you know, I draw uh, floor plans. There's a couple unique sites you can use for free, Magic Plan. Mm -hmm. Um, is pretty cool. You can use it with your phone. You can do a whole drawing of the property. Not quite as in depth as as you. You know, having something to actually draw it out for you. But it's a it's a good first step. Uh, right. So you kind of get the square footage. Um, you can then say, hey, you know, I have a thousand square feet. I need of you know tile versus you know whatever it is. And you can go get a basic price. And then when you get to a certain point in the deal where you're under contract or whatever, now all of a sudden you get the contractors out there. You you find all the variables, right? You get it down to more of a like, uh, you know, 
concrete price. Um, but there's a lot of legwork you can do. You learn so much. That's how I learned a lot about um, all of this is just doing the legwork. So uh, moving forward with these bird deals, you do you use basically either private money or equity partnerships. Uh, talk a little bit about the difference between private money and bringing on partners who have equity positions with you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, none of my equity partners, so I've got three partners, all of us are, are 50-50 um, in our, our various ones, and they've all come out, you know, come about differently. Um, for my first deal after my house hack, I had left my uh, full-time job, so I no longer had verifiable income for a lender. And so my best friend, who we've known each other since we were five, uh, was interested in like, hey, maybe like I'll, you know, I'll co-sign the loan. And so he kind of like bought in some equity and then it kind of evolved from there where he's like, actually, I want to be a real estate agent. He's going to be on my real estate sales team that I own now. And um, and he's kind of helped. Now he's running some projects. So he's had like two years of kind of learning from me different stuff. My other partner uh, happened to meet him. He was a flipper introduced to by uh, the CEO of the company in the Mankiti Group. And, uh, you know, we hit it off and, and bought a bunch of units together. Um, and he has some different expertises that I do, right? And then my third partner was one of my clients who was like really motivated, really interested, but didn't quite have the knowledge. And so, um, you know, he became an equity partner. Uh, you know, I found some deals. I didn't have the capacity to actually run them. And so he's kind of running those deals for me with kind of me guiding him and things like that. So all of my equity partnerships aren't because they've contributed capital. Although sometimes that is part of, of what we're doing is just, hey, if there's capital that needs to be contributed, who's in the best position to uh, contribute it currently? Um, so I'm not raising any equity partners because of money. Um, reason being is because we can raise the capital and that's part of all of our responsibilities is raising some private capital. So we usually raise anywhere from 10 to 15%, uh, depending on the deal, how long we're going to have it, things like that. And, uh, we try to raise as much privately as we can. And, um, the reason being is because we're saving the fees and things like that for our alternative, which would be hard money. Um, so hard money, we're going to pay, you know, maybe a point or, you know, one to 2% on the loan origination fee. And then we're going to pay, you know, 10 to 14% on the interest rate. So if I can cut off that fee in there and just have it raised privately, then that's what I'm going to do. So uh, we just raise it with promissory notes. So it's just basically personally guaranteed. Um, and then it will be tied to a project. So we'll say, hey, We've got this project. We expect it to deliver in nine months and be refinanced out of it. We're going to write a nine-month note. We're going to, you know, sometimes we'll pay uh, monthly. Now we're trying to pay more of it monthly versus deferred. In the beginning when we didn't have a lot of cash, we were trying to defer it, all the interest that we were paying until we actually got paid on the refinance. Um, but now we're actually in a pretty good good place where we'll pay it out of the cash flow of the properties um, rather than have a big, you know, amount due at the end. And so um, I think how you do that successfully is just ask a lot of people. You'd be surprised sometimes the people that are interested in, uh, in contributing money. And so for us, we have like a, we got to a point where we're like, all right, minimum amount is $5,000 that we'll raise from a single person just because of the logistics of all of it. And then, um, you know, it goes up from there. We've got people that have a hundred thousand dollars with us. We've got people that have $5,000 with us. Um, but it's, it's really just going through and, and raising that money um, we do a lot of education to our clients and a lot of people might be people that want to invest, um, but they're not ready to yet. They want to see a deal. So we'll say, Hey, you've got, you know, $30,000. If you want to lend it to us for the life of this project, we'll kind of show you a little bit of what's going on here. If you ever want to walk through or something like that, you know, come walk through, we'll show you the stages, you know, we'll kind of share some of our contractors and stuff like that for you when you actually get in the game. So, um, that's one of the ways that we're raising it. Um, but, but yeah, we try to raise as much with private capital. It's also just so much more flexible with hard money. You're going to have a large amount of this money that's sitting in a pot to the side that you're going to have to do the construction first before you can draw on that money. Mm -hmm. Whereas private money, it's in your account from day one. So you can go as quickly as you want to. Um, so those are some of the differences and, and that's kind of how we build it. But for me, an equity partner has to be somebody that is, uh, also all my partners are the long-term property managers of it. That's important to me because I don't necessarily want to be collecting the rent and things like that. I'm the type mm -hmm. of person that would use a property manager anyways. So if I can cut out that cost, have my partner manage it much better than a property manager would, um, then that's kind of how I set it up. So I'm going to run it 
you know, I'm going to usually find the deals and run it. And then we're each going to raise private capital as needed. And then at the point where it's delivered, then my partners are going to place them and kind of manage the, the property management of it. Um, and that's kind of how I run it. That's awesome. And they have vested interests, right? And so you know that they are taking care of the property and it's, it yeah. really is a great way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. So, um, you quit your job in development, uh, to become a real estate agent. And yeah. a lot of people don't really take that leap to become a full-time real estate agent. Uh, could you tell us how you knew you'd be a good agent? Yeah. I, um, so I always joke that like when people are asking like, you know, what do you do in your partnerships? Like what's your position and things like that. And I think like my position is the confidence. And so that's always been something that, that I've had is like, I just believe in my ability. And I think a lot of people, that's one of the biggest things that is a big difference maker is do you believe in your ability to be able to go out and, and be successful at this or are you like, are you scared of it? You know? And so that's one of the biggest things for me, uh, being a real estate agent, you know, I'm, I'm very analytical too. So I'm going to run the numbers and make sure that it makes sense. Uh, I think right now, if you're willing to do the work of a real estate agent, which a lot of people, I don't think know necessarily what the work of a real estate agent is. And that's the problem is most people get into it and think like, Hey, I'm just going to be showing houses or, you know, I'm somebody's going to give me all my leads and I'm just going to be like working with clients. Um, in real estate, as a real estate agent, your job is lead generation. And it's that way with most business owners. If you're going to go out and start a contracting company, your job is lead generation. You know, quite often you're not going to be the one that's doing all the work and stuff like that. Or, or if you are, your responsibility is also getting the clients. Mm -hmm. So I think people that understand that and are willing to do that work are the ones that uh, are going to be su successful. Same thing with the people that are, are just going to quit their job and become a full-time investor. You're lead generating in, in so many different ways. You're lead generating for properties. You're lead generating for capital. You're lead generating for contractors, maybe for partners, you know, like all of this different stuff. And if you're not, you're, if you're not committed to doing that, then you're probably better off served, you know, working for somebody else that is willing to do that. Um, so for me, I, I understood pretty early on that that was going to be my responsibility. My responsibility is getting people. Um, I understood how that kind of looped in with my whole investing world. I realized one of my biggest passions is helping and teaching people. And uh, I've been able to do that immensely through real estate sales. And uh, most real estate agents don't look at it like that. So, you know, I'll take on the client that's looking for a $100,000 first investment property. Even though it might not be the best use of my time, I'm helping to teach them. And eventually, they will usually turn into something else, something bigger, if I do my job right. <laughs> and they're successful yeah. at it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest differences is just belief in yourself and understanding what the actual job is when you go to jump into being a full-time investor or contractor or agent. You know, you're, you're likely not going to be a successful agent if your idea of going full time and being an agent is just buying your own stuff, you know, unless you have a massive amount of money and you can, you can really, you know, build off of that. Yeah. But I think you have to understand that you're going to have a job at least for a while in building your business. And that's going to be one of the biggest differences. And the biggest, and you know, another difference to add to your point is that you're, you're a business owner when you become a real estate agent, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to, you talked about a little bit about taking responsibility. Uh, it's not like a normal traditional job. We work for another employee, employer, like you have to take responsibility, like you said, for lead generation, right? Yeah. Or understanding your market. Um, there's so many agents. I'm an agent as well, right? And I see so many agents so apathetic about, you know, really understanding markets. And so when out-of-town investors come in, they get totally turned off by the fact that they basically don't know anything about, you know, the investing world of their area uh, or how things are transacted, right? I get clients coming to me all the time that you know had poor experiences with their agents because they didn't view it the way they did as an investor. And it, there really are so few agents that are investor friendly, like truly investor friendly, that you can set yourself apart if you decide to become an agent. If you really just dive deep into your market, understand the logistics, hang around other investors, go to meetups, right? And really just dive in and realize that you are a business owner. Right, absolutely. And, and to be like, we're in such a unique position as a real estate agent as well, that's actually doing the work of a real estate agent. Um, you know, I'll, I'll probably do about 60 to 70 deals this year uh, as a real estate agent. And, you know, it's a mix of investors, buyers, things like that. And so if I'm helping a uh, flipping client, I'm gonna be like, hey, I was just out, you know, this past weekend with a bunch of buyers. And this is what they're looking at. This is what they like. This is what they don't yeah. like. This is what doesn't matter, you know all of these different things. So as a real estate agent, if you can really show your expertise in that, 
um, versus just, you know, go show people houses, you're going to be valuable and people are going to, you know, you're going to get shared word of mouth, all that stuff. Yeah. You get great perspective. Uh, and then like you said, you have to be versatile too, right? Yeah. You can't just target one, you know, one, you can target one specific niche, but if you want to be really successful, like you have been right, uh, is, you know, being able to target people with first time home buyers or people that are looking for just yeah. a regular home, they want to move in ready. They don't want to do any of the work, right? Like that's a great niche to, you know, to attract to. But then you also have to deal with investors, house hackers, right? Flippers, right? Everything is unique, right? Uh, a house hackers look for something totally different than a flipper will probably, right? And so, uh, yeah, being versatile is another uh, talent of itself. Yeah, absolutely. So, so talk to your short-term goals here in 2020 uh, and then your long-term goals in real estate and beyond uh, going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, um one of my, it's funny, as you get older and you've been in, uh, investing in different things longer, you, you really start to, uh, somebody might tell you a lesson two or three years ago and you're like, oh, okay, cool. No, I understand that. And then you like actually feel it and you're like, oh my gosh, now I understand that. So one of the biggest things, and, and this is actually one, a book I would highly recommend, uh, it's called The One Thing uh, by Gary Keller. I'm with Keller Williams. And, and so a lot of the books that uh, he put together it, are you know really foundational to our education within Keller Williams. And so one of the, you know, the basic idea of that book is like focus on one thing, like find one thing and focus on it, which is very different from what I have uh, traditionally done, which is focus on a ton of different things, right? And you can see it, right? Like, you know, house hack, live and flip, uh, be an agent, you know, buy my own burrs, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so um, for me, 2020 is the year of kind of understanding where my time should be in different things. And so for me, when I looked at what my lead domino was or what's the most important thing for me to start with at first, it's really helping to build this foundation in my real estate agent business. So my goal as a real estate agent in 2020 is to do 20 million in sales. Um, the last two years I've done about 10 million, so it's like doubling that. Um, but it's really scaling back on how many construction projects I'm running. Uh, last year I ran um, probably about 15 different construction projects. So um, you know that's the, that takes a ton of time you never know when an inspector is going to have to call if you're, you know, if you're doing the inspections yourself, they might call you on a, on a Tuesday and say, I'll be there at two o'clock and you planned on them to be there at 10 o'clock. Really hard to plan days and things like that. So that's really been my biggest lesson from 2019 is, Hey, this is also the year I'm getting married, things like that. So it's like, let me actually, you know, enjoy and focus on one thing. And then things kind of come out of that. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's actually saying no to some investing deals it's really doubling down on uh, as a real estate agent and building the base so that I can build my team from that. I've got two agents on my team and, and an admin. And so really supporting them the best way that I can. And then really building the community around me of investors, uh, you know, young investors that are doing the house hacks and things like that. So that's where a lot of my sales come from. So it's really doubling down and helping those people and giving the deals that would typically come to me uh, that I might buy to my investor clients. So that's kind of my, my 2020 and I think 2021 is a little bit of finding that balance back and forth. And I, I think my goal by the end of 2021 would be a, at about 100 units. Um, but a lot of that happening towards the end of 2020 and, and into 2021. Um, so that's really, you know, that's my biggest goal to enjoy getting married to uh, uh, we're going to do another live in flip. So that'll be probably the only construction project that I run this year. Uh, if I do any other stuff in my partnerships, my partners will run those. Uh, investment deals or, or the actual construction of it. Um, but it's really focusing on uh, taking care of my clients. Cool, man. Uh, so what would you say separates potential house hackers from those who are actually doing it? Yeah, I think it's um, how they value risk and actually just moving forward and having confidence. Um, those are the two really big things. And so I think one of the challenges in how we're educated and things like that is nobody ever sits you down and says, here's how you should evaluate the risk of different things. You know, the risk of having a nine to five job where you pay into social security and hoping that social security is there for you when you know you go to retire is actually really, really risky, you know, but like nobody tells you that that's risky. Like if right. anything you're talking, right. that's the least risky thing to do. Um, whereas it's seen as risky that, you know, you might go start your own business or, or, you know, do something like that. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges for really every investor, uh, but especially house hackers. And I think uh, with house hackers, if they can overcome that and kind of reshape their way that, that their risk is calculated, 
because it really ends up coming from our families and our friends. You know, what are our families and friends doing? I find that if, if I have a friend group where one of them house hacks, the whole friend group is more likely to house hack, right? Versus, mm-hmm. or if, you find this all the time. My first client is actually like, he was a really conservative guy. Uh, and I was like, dude, you're never gonna like really go for like a house hack. And it turns out his dad did a house hack, you know, didn't know the term or anything like that, but his dad did a house hack right out of college. And so his dad had always kind of told him, yeah, after you graduate college, like you should buy a house and like live with your buddies and have them pay your rent. And so for him, like the risk was totally like switched around. It was like, oh, my dad did it. Like I can do it kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the biggest things is how can you, how do you look at risk? um, And how can you get yourself to change the view of risk? And then from there, um, it's really, do you have the confidence to move forward with a deal? You know, I've, I've had, uh, I had one client that like almost got to the closing case. You know, we were two weeks away from closing and um, he was like, I just can't do it, you know? Uh, and I since found somebody else for that same house hack. It was a really unique, awesome house hack. And they've like had wild success with it. Probably one of the best house hacks that one of my clients has had. Yet somebody just didn't have the confidence and the way to evaluate that risk to understand this is a really great deal. And then he really just kind of was his own worst enemy there. Um, so I, I mean, I think those are the two big things is confidence. And then how do you evaluate risk and how do you learn to reevaluate risk? And that's why it's so important to find an agent like yourself, right? That can lend that confidence. Cause that really is important. Yeah. Looking back at Drew and myself back when we were beginners, right? That's what we lacked. And I'm sure you probably had moments like that too, where yeah. you lack some confidence. I might, I've always been somebody similar to you that has been superbly, you know, supremely confident in myself. Um, but when you come to big decisions like that, sometimes you need to lean on others. And so yeah. when you find a great agent like yourself who's been there, who's done that, who evaluates, knows the difference. Like you talked about, you know, getting a house act that's higher end in your area generally is better long run, right? And in an ROI sense, than maybe the lower price points. Um, yeah. And so knowing that, you know, somebody goes in there with a four or five hundred thousand dollar property or, or whatever it is, man, you can get a little gun shy. Uh, but when you got an agent like yourself that can say, hey, look at these numbers, look at the long term, look at the appreciation rate, look at what's developing, like all the, you know, it's very important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, too, the really cool thing is like after you have time, um, I can actually just refer them to other house hackers and say like, hey, here, if you have some concerns, call this guy. You know, he did a similar house hack to you. Like he'll tell you the pros and cons and things like that. And so if you're looking to house hack, I you really should be able to rely on your agent as a hub to kind of be able to tell you, Hey, here's some other people that have done stuff like this, or you know, here's a resource in the podcast or whatever it might be. So you can hear some stories, maybe reach out to those people. If, uh, if you want to do something kind of similar to that. Uh, and I think, you know, that is a really good way to reevaluate your risk or to, to complement your confidence, you know, to say like, Hey, okay, this person's really done it. And so I can, you know, I now have two people, one of them is not, you know, relying on a commission at all for me. And I've been really, um, really uh, conscious of that because as a real estate agent, you know, our, our um, incentive is to get a deal closed, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so if you're going with a real estate agent that doesn't sell much, they need that to make their next house payment, things like that. Like it can, you know, they can give you some not necessarily the best guidance, especially in house hacking. So finding somebody that's had success with it and then are they backing up what they're saying that is helping to give you confidence with data? You know, can they give people that are similar? You know, it's really cool to be able to sell a house hack and have a house hack five blocks away that somebody else does. And it's like, they're getting this much for a room, you know? And, and so it's really, really easy. So, yeah. yeah. So, so that's something uh, I really hope comes out of this podcast too, that we instill that confidence into the listeners because we have example yeah. after example of successful house hacks. And I think, you know, it's a way of like, maybe someone's not seeing it done, but they can listen how it's done from all these people. And I really hope that that helps other people out. Absolutely. I mean, there's this, the awesome thing about a house hack, especially in a single family where you're renting rooms out. The awesome, awesome thing is that in, in the world today, there is a, a very small amount of affordable properties, you know, in terms of like renting, you know, a one bedroom rent, you know, Baltimore here is like a thousand to 1500. If you're in the nice areas, it's like two grand. And so um, it's a really, really fantastic way to, to provide lower cost stuff. And so many people are looking for that, that I think what most people's worry is like, is like, what if I don't fill this thing? Or what if the people are just crazy people or whatever? And I've like really been waiting for somebody to be like, hey, I've had this crazy story. Like, you know, it just went to, you know, everything was horrible, you know? 
And nobody's had that outside of the, the one gentleman that had, he just had a sewer backup, you know, right. and, um, and insurance took care of it and then he sold it for a profit. Right. So it's like, I've been waiting for that, but that I hope that you guys get that out too, is like, there are so many instances where, or so few instances where people have had bad experiences and, and really it's because you're providing the market with something that's not readily available, you know? And, and the biggest thing is that being a house hacker, you mitigate that risk. Right. Because it's your own, you know, your own property. You don't have two mortgages to pay or whatever the right. case might be. Right. Uh, the first year that I had my first house hack, my sewer backed up on Christmas Day. Right. Oh. So Christmas night, I had to I had to hire this 24 hour service. Right. Paid ridiculous price. Yeah. But like these problems come up. But when you're house hacking, you mitigate those risks. Right. It, that it's been yeah. the greatest deal I've ever done. That first one. Uh, and it was kind of a house hack burps, you know, combo like you've done. Um, right. But, you know, when those when those situations arise, you, you mitigate it because you're living for free. Right. You should be saving yeah. a lot of the cash flow you're, you're uh, receiving for instances like this. So when things come up, it's just what you're expecting owning real estate. And there's so many benefits outside of those. You know, you get to, of course, write those off eventually. Right. Um, you know, you get depreciation benefits and taxes like there's so many benefits to doing it that it mitigates all these small hiccups. So you talked a little bit about reading, right? You you talked about one mindset book, which is the one thing by Gary Keller, which is a phenomenal book. What are uh, what's another one of your favorite business or mindset specific books? Yeah, um, I mean the the one thing is is a great one. You know, I really love that one. Um, probably you know, so less so like related to real estate and more probably about personal development. Um, you know, depending on where you are in your life, I think uh, Awaken the Giant by Tony Robbins is a, a fantastic one. Um, if you've never been to a Tony Robbins event or anything like that, it's just a really, really great way of doing a deep dive into yourself and, and then also figuring out like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, mm -hmm. because the more that you can stack these reasons on of like, why are you investing? You know, like, what are you doing it for? And I shared a little bit for me, it's helping other people, uh, in terms of, of educating them, you know, and I've been super fortunate to have incredible educators in my life and, and, uh, role models and things like that. And so you know, part of my goal is to be that for other people. And, and if that wasn't one of my whys, you know, then that it, it makes it a little bit harder when there's a late night or when I got to go do something that I really don't want to go do. And so I think really being able to build those whys on top of each other. And I think Awaken the Giant Within is, is a really great one. Um, so that and the one thing are really fantastic, not real estate related books, um, you know, there. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, so what about a uh, real estate book? Yeah, so um, I really like, uh, again, you know, Gary Keller writes some really great stuff. Um, as a real estate agent, the millionaire real estate agent, um, they call it the Red Book and Keller Williams is really, really fantastic on understanding like what an agent actually does and like what does your business actually look like um, for one. And then a um, millionaire real estate investor also kind of breaks down that stuff a lot. Um, I also love stories that are just like almost biographical about people. Might even have it here. Yeah, here it is. So there's this one guy I was talking to, um, uh, my mentor, Bo Mankiti, who uh, owns the Mankiti Group. And uh, him and his wife were telling me about how they're kind of structuring some of their development stuff off this guy uh, named Trammell Crow. And uh, unless you live in Texas, maybe you haven't heard much about him. Um, but he was like in the early-ish 1900s to mid-1900s. He really took real estate to like the next level. His company was built through partnerships and things like that. And so uh, there's, I think there's two books called Trammel Crow. This is one of them. And um, it's just a, he's a, a fantastic kind of model of like, how did he do stuff? And it's not always lessons on how he did them well. You know, he would just make these partnerships. And before he even finalized a partnership with a handshake, he'd be building a building with them and things like that, which, you know, it's just kind of craziness. Yeah. But I love hearing the stories of people. And, and that's a fantastic story of how he built I believe at the at the peak, it was the biggest real estate company in the world wow. uh, in terms of holdings. And he invented the modern, um, I don't know if it was the strip mall or like modern market, like industrial kind of market. Mm -hmm. um, and so he really kind of took those things to the next level. So that's really cool if you just want like a biographical, like kind of get motivated of like what could things look like, like really, really big. Yeah. Um, so I think that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And it's great to know, you know, 
getting personal recommendations from you know somebody you really respect, like a role model or or somebody that is mentoring you, is important, right? Because they can they specialize it to their own life, right? We get all these books from you know big figures and bigger pockets puts out a lot of great books and stuff. But when you have a yeah. personal experience with somebody that you're de- you know dealing with, like the Mankiti Group, um, who can say, hey, let's check this book out. It's lesser known, but it fits right to your life and kind of what you're trying to do. Like that's a great way to go as well. Right. Absolutely. So we genuinely appreciate you coming on today. Uh, if somebody were in your market or if somebody wants to reach out to you about your story, because your story is awesome and a lot of people yeah. you know, at your age want to do exactly what you're doing, how can people reach out to you? Where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're in the market and you know you ever want to get together or anything like that, you can um, email me. My email is acarol at kw.com. Uh, that's carol, A-C-A-R-R-O-L-L at kw.com. Um, I'm on social media on Facebook. Um, you know, you can just find me Austin Carroll, um, Instagram. I think I'm a Carol 1030, uh, not super active on those, but that's one of my goals for this year is just to share a lot more on that. Um, cause there's, you know, so often where I'm just walking through projects and, and I could be sharing that stuff. Um, also, um, let me see, uh, if you're, if you're, um, in the market as well, or you just need some advice on, uh, house hacking, um, Devin Marino is my partner and he does a lot of um, house hacking. I think it's called the Baltimore Investor Network. And we can add all this to the show notes. We'll link it all to it. Cool. That would be perfect. Um, Baltimore Investor Network on uh, YouTube. You know, he talks a lot about, um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you so you guys can perfect. have uh, cool. that. Um, but that's a great way to just kind of watch some of those YouTube videos. I'm on a lot of them. Um, I'm going to be uh, looking to get on more of them. But he's really, really good at social media and YouTube and stuff like that. So uh, if anybody reaches out to him, too, he'll probably loop me in. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think those places are the best way to kind of reach me. Um, I've got a uh, website, bluekeyteam.com. Um, if you want to, it's got like a link to the MLS and stuff like that. Uh, if you'd like to go there and kind of search some stuff, you can also request a view of property and things like that. It'll come straight to me. Um, so yeah, those will be the ways. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. I mean, your story is phenomenal. 64 units sold 10 million, trying to sell 20 in this, this coming year. Uh, and so we really appreciate you coming on. I know a lot of people can relate to where you're at and where they want to go through your story. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. And thanks for doing what you do. You know, it's, it's incredible for people to have this resource and hear so many different stories of house hackers and investors and, and stuff like that. So I appreciate you guys doing that. Absolutely, man. Thanks for listening. If you could do me a huge favor and go give us a five-star rating on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. It would really help us out. If we provided any value, please go do that. Otherwise, there's a lot of people who haven't subscribed. So go ahead and go subscribe and you'll get notifications when a new podcast episode is released. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day.